What does immigration have to do with climate change? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Nathan Goodman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Nathan Goodman. Nathan is a senior research fellow and senior fellow at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Previously, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Economics at New York University, where he was affiliated with the program on the foundations of the market economy. He earned his Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University. Today, we are discussing a paper titled adapting to climate change through migration, and he co-authored this paper with his co-author, Justice Aninga. Justice is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Economy at King's College, London, where his research focuses on the intersection of philosophy, politics, and economics. So Nathan, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And it's great to have you on, Nathan. So we base each episode on a theming question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is... What does immigration have to do with climate change? So we're going to explore a recent paper that you and your co-author have, re- have worked on and released. And I want to jump into sort of a context-setting question first. So can you describe the upcoming climate change challenges in general that you've been reading about and researching and we've all been hearing about, and then just tie that to, you know, the ability of humans to live in certain places in general. Before we talk about migration, immigration, and so on, just why is climate change important to think about when we think about what humans are going to do and how they're going to live? Yeah, so the way I think about this as an economist, because it's important to emphasize that I'm not a climate scientist, I'm not a physical scientist, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, and so it's distinctly possible that somebody with a better knowledge of the climate science would have important criticisms of specific claims I were to make about climate change. And so I don't want to represent myself as an expert on that. However, the way I think about it as an economist is that we as human beings interact with one another and make plans. And those plans can become frustrated when conditions change, right? So if you're planning to engage in agriculture as your way of making a living, you're doing so with certain expectations about what the land that you're growing crops on can sustain, right? You're, you have expectations about the weather, you have expectations about the range of temperatures you're experiencing, and so on. And that's true not just for agriculture, but for almost everything that we're doing as people, right? And so our activities and plans come with certain assumptions and certain prerequisites related to the physical environment that we're living in. And that includes the temperature, but it also includes other features of the climate, such as droughts, rainfall patterns, and so on, right? And so climate change disrupts pre-existing patterns that human beings have made plans based on, right? If you buy a beachfront property, you're making a plan, an investment based on a forecast that, oh, well, this is going to remain a beachfront property. Right. If sea level rise can change that from a beachfront property to a house underwater. Similarly, climate change can change a profitable farm into a farm that's no longer profitable, right? And so all those different changes can be disruptive to people's plans, which means people's plans will require revision and adjustment. So ultimately, 
from an economist's perspective, or at least from my perspective, the story of climate change involves a story of people needing to engage in plan revision, and that plan revision could become quite costly at times. But how costly it is might depend on the rules that people face and how free they are to adapt. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that was an excellent sort of overview with the, the lens that you look at this through. So then, and, and again, as you said, this isn't a climate science hour, but just at a, you know, at, at a high level. So then based on that, and if we're talking about, you know, the way humans beings make plans and the things that, and the way they interact with each other and so on, um, you know, if it, it, you know, with the assumption that climate change is happening now and that the planet is changing and warming and so on and so forth, can you describe the kinds of things that we might see and who this kind of thing, uh, you know, could disproportionately affect essentially? Because I'm assuming, you know, there's probably people going to be people that are more affected, less affected, et cetera. But just without going country by country, of course, what are the general types of trends you think you'll see as far as humans being affected? Yeah. So some of the types of impacts might come from particular kinds of natural disasters. So, certain types of storms or hurricanes. Some of it might come from droughts. So we hear from certain people who are considering migrating already due to the effects of climate change, things about them currently having a farm and that farm ceasing to be a viable business venture, for example. There's the concern, which we cite in the paper that's been raised by some papers and climate models, that certain regions will become uh, hot zones where you enter a temperature range that's not particularly survivable for people, right? This kind of temperature range that we currently only see in places like the Sahara Desert, right? So if you're in an environment that currently doesn't have that, and it becomes an environment that's in that temperature range, for most people, that's going to become a lot less hospitable to their desires, values, and plans. And it's pretty well established by climate scientists that different regions are going to face these to differing degrees. So for instance, I pulled up in preparation for the interview, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's uh, summary for policymakers. And in their section on vulnerability and exposure mm. of ecosystems and people, they write, vulnerability of ecosystems and people to climate change differs substantially among and within regions. And they describe their level of confidence in that claim as very high confidence. So that's then going to feed into our overarching question for the episode, what does climate change have to do with migration? Because if there's big differences in terms of how vulnerable people are based on the region, those who are living in regions where they're more vulnerable are going to face incentives to migrate. Right. So let's actually dive into that part that you just talked about there a little further than like the, the regions that will be more vulnerable. Is there sort of word or have you seen in your research, for example, about like who this is going to most affect? Is it going to be folks in Europe? Is it going to be in people in Ontario, Canada? Is it, is it the, you know, Western Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere? I think you mentioned the Global South in the paper. So like who, as far as people moving and changing their plans and going to that drastic step, rather than just adapting and buying an air conditioner, for example, where do you think we're mm -hmm. going to see the most mm -hmm. human movement from? Yeah, so the predictions I've seen tend to involve predictions around broadly the global south. So this includes less developed countries where um, you would expect adaptation to be, to some extent, costly and the available resources for adaptation to be less available, but also areas that are already warmer and are likely to, as warming occurs, uh, potentially become hot zones. So we're talking areas in Africa, certain parts of uh, Southeast Asia, certain parts of Latin America, right? So, and I want to emphasize that not all of this migration would necessarily happen from the global south to the global north. So to, for instance, uh, Western Europe and the United States and Canada, some of it will happen 
internally to the global south, right? You might be right. in a country that's hit harder than a neighboring country. Um, you might experience something like a hurricane or a drought, and that might be your impetus for moving. So it's not all a question of people moving from, uh, say, various parts of, uh, say, Africa, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America to the United States, Western Europe, Canada, that sort of scenario. Some of it will be that, but some of it will be people moving between adjacent countries within mm-hmm. uh, the regions I described. And, and and is the idea that, you know, some folks are currently living, you know, within certain economies or countries that, you know, for example, um, that economy or country might not be strong enough or have enough resources to example to adapt to some of the effects of climate change? Or is it the idea that like, you know, X, Y and Z region will, for all intents and purposes, become unbearable for human life? Is it a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B? What's what's that sort of outlook look like for different countries and what you've seen? So I think it would be a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So some of it would be it's costly to adapt. And in a poorer society, you're less able to uh, bring up the resources for those costs unless you move to a place where you can earn a higher higher wage, which is largely going to be wealthier countries, right? So there's a well-documented phenomenon in the literature on the economics of immigration called the place premium, right? Even if you have the same skills, moving from, say, Haiti to the United States can massively increase your income. And so that will be one thing. And that potentially might be, along those margins, that might be migration that you eventually move back from, right? You might move, send remittances to your family so that they can afford to take on the expenses necessary to adapt, and then you might move back to be with your family. So some of it might be non-permanent migration. But for many people, you might expect permanent migration if either the climate becomes unbearable just unlivable, or if people's production plans and skills no longer are a good fit for where they initially honed those skills and production plans, right? So say you're an agricultural worker or a farm owner, for example, if your land becomes inhospitable for the kind of farming that you've uh, formed your plans around, it would make sense for you to move to a place that remains hospitable for that kind of agricultural labor or agricultural investment. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And and with all that context in mind, because I think that's been great so far, and thank you for that, I'd I'd like to move us on to a couple of different cruxes of the paper and the kinds of things that you establish in there. Um, So first thing I want to get into is like sort of the perspective that a lot of folks sort of have on this, specifically governments, of course. So you do mention in the paper that, you know, assuming mass movement of humans in response to various different types of climate change and changes, um, a lot of people are framing this conversation right now as if it's a security threat, that kind of thing. So, you know, and I, and I, you know, um, I, I didn't really get to thinking about it specifically, but when I was preparing to, to, to talk with you today, I sort of thought to myself, that's, I have noticed that actually, when I look at news and things like that, um, you know, you don't see, you know, a, a very like neutral sort of business journal or technology science and tech or magazine saying sort of like, Hey, you know, here's some interesting tech about the, up, the upcoming ways we can cope with climate change. There's often a lot of just mainstream news articles talking about how governments and so on can respond uh, to, um, to, to humans moving climate change, but there's a specific security tone to it. So can you explain a little more about what you mean, like this, this security threat idea and that as a context for the discussion? Because I found that quite interesting. Yeah, so a lot of people, especially people in government, uh, both elected officials and bureaucrats, especially within certain security-oriented agencies, like say the U.S. Department of Defense or the U.S. Department of Homeland Security or Frontex in Europe, 
right? People in those sorts of organizations, as well as elected officials, often frame climate migration principally as a security threat. So rather than thinking of it as some scholars do as a form of climate adaptation that we would perhaps want so as to reduce the human costs of climate change as well as reduce the economic costs of climate change, they instead think of it as, oh, all these people are moving here, that's going to uh, be potentially disruptive, uh, it's going to potentially involve them coming into direct conflict with our border security efforts, and that type of conflict is itself a security threat, how are we going to keep track of them? Uh, so framing it as a security threat orients them towards a very particular way of looking at the problem, specifically towards top-down solutions. So that's really what I'm worried about here is by framing it in these terms as a security threat. And I think there's a range of reasons that different people frame it as a security threat. For some of them, that's just because it's what they're trained and tasked with assessing, mm -hmm. right? If you're at the Department of Defense and you're assessing a climate change scenario, your primary purpose is to assess the security issues involved in that uh, climate change scenario, right. right? You're not tasked with doing a broader sociological or economic analysis. Your job is working as a security analyst. So for some bureaucrats, it's because it's their skill set and their job. Um, for other public officials, I think some of it might be a matter of political strategy, right? If you're a politician in the U.S. Democratic Party and you're trying to convince uh, people on the other side of the aisle to support your climate change efforts, framing it as a national security topic rather than, say, a humanitarian topic might be seen as a way to uh, give an olive branch to Republicans or to potentially shame Republicans, right. say, you Republican politicians say you're all about national security, but you're ignoring this big national security threat that's associated with climate change, right? So that it might be partially a political strategy where Democratic Party politicians want to frame it in these terms so as to either score political points or potentially bring some moderates on the other side of the aisle on board with some of their mitigation proposals. But regardless of the stated of the underlying reasons for this framing, my concern with this framing is that it elevates some aspects of the phenomenon over others, and it recommends and leads people's minds and attention towards certain types of solutions while neglecting others. Right. In other words, I guess that's because if some, regardless of how one comes to the idea that there's some sort of security threat or security layer to this conversation, it, it, it nevertheless becomes, I suppose, looked at as a threat to be mitigated rather than, you know, being looked at from a different perspective. And, and actually on that point, I, I noted that the paper also mentioned that sort of like the legal status of climate migrants is in flux. Can, can, can you explain sort of what you guys meant by that? Like I, like our countries right now actually considering, for instance, creating immigration categories for climate migration or are global organizations sort of taking a certain stance on this kind of thing in the way they do asylum, for example. Can you can you talk a bit about that? Mm -hmm. So I don't know the political feasibility of creating a separate asylum category, but it's definitely something that some of the academics writing in the literature and some of the policy oriented people writing in the literature would like people to, to consider because people are thinking of this as exactly as you say, something akin to asylum insofar as rather than it just being people moving to seek an opportunity to improve their life, it's people fleeing certain types of adverse conditions. And so people see this as in some ways analogous to other types of refugee status. But at the level of international law, it's not clear that this is as yet a protected uh, refugee type category. And so because there are people who are advocating that type of thing, but it's not something that's a current category in international law. There's no body of international law that I know of 
uh, right. pertaining to climate change induced migrants. Uh, that means that currently the legal status of these immigrants is in flux. Are they simply to go through the normal processes through which, at least in the United States, as well as in most other rich countries, there are very few slots available for prospective migrants, right? There's the diversity lottery, there's a certain number of employment-based visas and so on, there's a certain number of family-based visas, but these are all strictly, fairly strictly capped. The only, one of the few uncapped categories is refugees right. and asylum status because there's a presumption that they have a right to migrate and since these migrants don't have that type of asylum category but some people would like for that to be created as an asylum category the relevant legal status is in flux which makes it an especially policy relevant topic for scholars to investigate the different implications of alternative institutional arrangements. Right. For. No, that's so it's very interesting to know where the status of that sort of discussion is at, because it sounds like it's in its infancy is what you're saying. There's no sort of, you know, world economic forum sort of notion on this right now, for example. It's not going to be that kind of thing. It's, it's sort of like the, you're saying a lot of academics are discussing this. A lot of policy people, perhaps, is at least the re, on the research side. It's not really, at least from what you've seen, something that's on one of the main agendas right now, at least on the international stage, to, you know, unveil something tomorrow, for mm -hmm. example, like a climate refugee for example yeah at least at the level of formal legal rules for it like i right. do think a lot of international bodies are discussing it as part of their broader discussion of climate change but it's just a question of to what extent are we seeing any sort of consensus on a generalized policy i think unfortunately from my perspective the main type of consensus policy view among people talking about it who have political power is more the security type right. framing right and and back on that note exactly i mean i we kind of talked a lot about the what right now which is great context again i'm going to move a bit into the how um and you know you sort of already mentioned this that you said like one of the things that you, you personally in your value judgment are not happy with but also something to that's simply objective fact is that a lot of the solutions to this quote-unquote problem if, if we assume you know these folks are thinking of it as a security threat you're saying there's a lot of top-down thinking on the problem of course this is where your paper starts uh introducing and discussing this within the sort of perspective of this idea of this monocentric versus polycentric look or way to approach the problem so uh, first um i'd like it if you sort of you know talked a bit about what you mean by the term monocentric and then, you know, spoiler alert, then I'll ask you to talk about polycentric. But let's start with monocentric first, like if you could illustrate that for us. Like, what do you mean by that if someone's coming from that perspective or an institution is coming from that perspective? Yeah, so a monocentric organization or institution is an organization or institution where it's hierarchically organized and there's a single center of decision making and authority that all the other decision making units uh, are sort of vertically situated below at an answer to that single center of authority. So we can think of, for example, the United States military as an especially monocentric institution, because at least formally, there's a chain of command. And at the top of that chain of command is the commander in chief, right? And the fact that I can say the commander in chief with that definite article there, rather than say a commander in chief, as if there were multiple, right? The fact that there's a single one sort of directly aligns with this notion of it being monocentric, right? Right. I guess another example would be like sort of the way corporations are oriented to, especially mm -hmm. huge ones, right? There's the CEO and the board. It's not like a, you know, a widespread council of people deciding on things to do, right? Exactly, right? So a, a competitive market might be more polycentric, but each individual firm is likely to be monocentric. There could be more less monocentric firms or more monocentric firms, right? So you could imagine a firm where there's a lot of different teams and they have relative autonomy, 
but ultimately they all answer to the CEO and the board. And so it's still more monocentric than a situation in which these were separate organizations. Mm-hmm. And if we're and if we're talking about polycentric and polycentricity, can you explain a bit about what you mean by that in general? But then also connected to the idea of, you know, how we can look at uh, you know the prob the quote unquote problem of mass migration uh, due to climate change. Yeah. So the notion of polycentricity, it, it was first sort of developed by Michael Polanyi, and then was especially fleshed out by Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom being the 2009 Nobel laureate in economics. And all of these scholars, when they talk about a polycentric system, are talking about a system with multiple formally independent centers of decision making. So one clear example of a polycentric system would be a competitive market, right? So if you've got a lot of different firms, each of those firms makes their own plans independently, and then coordination among them is a spontaneous order that emerges from competition, exchange, and not from instead a top-down plan decided by any one person, right? There's no single person who plans out what's going on in that market. Another example of a polycentric system, and this is one that Michael Polanyi gave a lot of attention to, is a scientific community, right? It's not as though I am the king of economics and I get to decide what all the economics papers published each year are, right? Instead, the economics profession and any other scientific discipline is structured in such a way that there are multiple academic departments, multiple independent research centers and research labs, right? There are a bunch of different people with a bunch of different perspectives. There are a bunch of academic journals that we can submit to. We write our papers, submit our papers, then they're subjected to peer review by other scientists, some of whom might largely agree with us, some of whom might largely disagree with us. So there's that process of contestation, a sort of checks and balances. And uh, then once it's published, right, that research can once again be contested by other researchers, right? And so science in that sense is a polycentric system. And for that reason, it's more robust and has more error correcting capabilities than we would expect if any one person was appointed, you know, king of science or science czar or science CEO and got to just decide, well, I say what the science is and I like this paper and I don't like that paper, so it can't ever be published, right? The fact that there's a multiplicity of academic journals, that there's a multiplicity of research groups, and that they all sort of interact, can engage in collaboration as well as contestation, that's part of how we learn. So polycentric systems in this sense are systems uh, in which there are many different centers of decision-making, but that doesn't inherently mean that their results are chaotic or disordered. They could be under some conditions, but often what we find when we study polycentric systems is that a polycentric system will generate uh, processes of learning and error correction. We see that in markets with processes of economic calculation where uh, prices provide signals and profit and loss feedback encourages firms to abandon projects that are not valued as much by consumers and to pursue projects that are valued more by consumers, right? Similarly, we see it in science with eventually theories being overturned as other scientists contest them. And we we can see this sort of process occurring in all sorts of other polycentric systems. So if we're thinking about a government, for example, a dictatorship would be especially monocentric, right? Whereas a federalist system would be relatively polycentric, right? So the United States has 50 different uh, states, state governments. um, And so in that environment, 
Um, I'm able to move, for example, from New York to Virginia and thereby move between different sets of policies. And at the level of the federal government, there's some degree of polycentricity insofar as there's three branches of government that are supposed to act as checks and balances against one another, right? So that's more polycentric than a system in which there's one leader on top of the whole system and everybody answers to him no, or her. Yeah, but no, that's excellent. Thank you very much. And it's about the time to take a break. Next, we're going to dive into sort of the polycentric approach and how it could be better with dealing with climate change induced migration. But it, it is a good time to take a break before I start peppering you with those questions. So everyone, <laughs> we're going to do that break right now. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nathan Goodman today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Janet Bufton, and Yakov Mikhailovich. Remember to link us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nathan Goodman today. So, Nathan, I think that the first half was great. We covered a lot of context setting, a lot of the what of the conversation of what we're dealing with. Then we started getting a, a bit into the how. We started talking about a monocentric approach versus a polycentric approach in general. I would like to dive a little deeper into sort of, I guess, ultimately, you know, in the paper, you guys are claiming that uh, the polycentric approach is better for dealing with climate change induced migration. And you point to three polycentric mechanisms. So let, let's go through those kind of things first and some highlights there. And then I want to talk about monocentricity again, some of the problems associated with it. So that's a little plan there for our second half. But so on the polycentric side, um, as I said, you guys do point to the three polycentric mechanisms. So you do highlight markets, civil society, and community governance as basically the mechanisms that are going to be better for, in your guys' claim, uh, dealing with climate change-induced migration. So let, let's start, and we'll go through each one. And of course, I always tell the listeners, go check out the paper. <laughs> like, we're not going to read it here, like, word for word, of course, and, and we don't have time to go through everything that's in there. But again, at a high level, we'll, do, we'll go one by one. So let's start with markets, you know, classic situation, brief definition, just to solidify what we're talking about, and how you think it applies to solving this specific problem. What are markets going to do for us? Yeah. So, I mean, broadly, markets are nexuses of voluntary exchange where people are uh, buying and selling various goods and services. And as I mentioned earlier, markets are an example of a polycentric system because rather than any one person imposing a single top-down plan for how goods and services are going to be allocated, different entrepreneurs can try different projects. Um, they can get profit and loss feedback, which tells them things about whether the goods and services that they bring to the market are valued more or less by consumers than alternative uses of the same inputs, that is the same capital goods. So for instance, tools, uh, farm equipment or uh, factory uh, equipment or whatever else, and uh, labor, so people's time and their, uh, their skills, which economists would call human capital as their skills. But in any case, you, you've got all these inputs put in, and you pay a price for those inputs, that price emerges from a process of voluntary exchange. And while this is certainly an imperfect process, and there can be various types of uh, discoordination, there can be instances where people's plans clash, what's useful is 
like other polycentric systems, markets can generate processes of competition, discovery, and error correction. So how does this play out in the context of immigration? Well, immigrants interact within the market on several uh, different ways, right? So one way that immigrants interact within the market is as laborers, right? So I mentioned earlier the place premium. So that basically means that uh, how much you earn as a worker depends in part on location, 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 right? So even if you have the same skills in Haiti as you do in the United States, you're going to earn a lot more in the United States than you are in Haiti. And part of the reason for that is that because you're interacting with a more developed system of markets and social cooperation, your labor can generate more value even if you have the same skills that you had in Haiti. And so one advantage of a labor market wherein people are free to move to places where they can earn more money is they then have an incentive to allocate their time and their labor towards uses that other people value more and thereby create more wealth than they would be able to otherwise. And this type of process is especially relevant for situations involving uh, conditions of change because if we are dealing with big changes like climate change, then one potential issue is that we're going to need people to revise their plans based on the changing prices, uh, changing profit and loss feedback, and so on. And if people experience something like their wages as a farm worker declining in a place because farming has become untenable, but wages for farming in another place rise because farmland that maybe was too cold becomes capable for use for growing, right? That creates an incentive for them to move to a place, at least temporarily, where their labor creates more value for people. So if we don't allow laborers to move in this way, then we would expect total agricultural output to decline, right? We would expect less food to be available due to climate change. If, on the other hand, people who have skills in agricultural labor can move from places where they're no longer able to engage in as productive agricultural labor to places where they can engage in more productive agricultural labor, then the amount of food loss due to climate change would be uh, proportionately less, right? We would uh, be able to have more food and more quickly adjust to that particular challenge associated with climate change. The other, so that's, that's the labor market side. Uh, but immigrants also are often entrepreneurs. They often start businesses when they move to a country where they can more freely do so, right? And so part of the reason for this, of course, is that the institutional environment for prospective entrepreneurs, whether that's access to loans or security of property rights, that varies substantially across different countries, right? So you have a greater chance of being a successful entrepreneur who creates a lot of value in a country where you have relatively secure property rights, a country where you can get access to loans and so on, than in a country where say property rights are very insecure. Now, if climate change uh, makes certain countries even more insecure, right? Then one thing that might happen is the incentive to migrate for that reason will increase, right? And the amount of entrepreneurial talent that we lose due to that will uh, become more severe. The other thing is, you know, as climate change occurs, we're going to need more people thinking of entrepreneurial solutions to the challenges posed by climate change. And some of that will be on the mitigation side, say, inventing different sources of green energy. Some of it might be on the geoengineering side. So things where you 
alter the Earth's atmosphere to ameliorate the effects of climate change. And some of it would be on the adaptation side, right? We've experienced certain things becoming less productive. We've experienced uh, certain places becoming less comfortable. We need a different array of products or services in order to provide goods and services that can get us to a similar standard of living or a similar level of comfort to what we experienced before climate change. Whether that adjustment process works is going to depend on whether entrepreneurs are able to try out the types of projects that potentially can serve the different needs that we're facing due to climate change. And some of those entrepreneurs right now are trapped in societies where they're not really able to have as much access to the opportunity to engage in that sort of entrepreneurship. And so if more migrants can move to countries like the United States or Canada that have relatively friendly environments for entrepreneurship, then we also can become more prosperous through that kind of process. Mm -hmm. So you'll note that a lot of that is applicable as just a general aspect of immigration, right? So relatively free migration is generally better for wealth creation and therefore for human prosperity and well-being than relatively restrictive migration policy. And that's true regardless of the extent of climate change. The issue just becomes more severe under conditions of climate change because climate change provides an additional set of shocks that mean people are going to need to revise their plans and therefore that some people are going to find either their labor or their entrepreneurial efforts are going to be uh, less valued where they're currently at and that plan revision, including movement to different areas, um, can be a way to create more value where their ability to create value where they are has been hampered. Mm -hmm. so, so on the one hand, if we have like the market, for lack of a better term, regulating, quote unquote, if you will, uh, movement of human beings, you know, with various cost benefits and price signals and so on and so forth, exactly as you described. I just want to illustrate the flip side of, of that a little bit then. So as you said, a lot of this applies just to immigration in general, let alone immigration, you know, due to climate change. But when you put all that together, the flip side, I guess, is is the um, non-market approach, I guess, would that just be effectively government regulation in, in the same way that, you know, we, we don't want them telling us how many loaves of bread should be baked in a certain geographical area? I guess the, the uh, you know, if the government's regulating it, it's it's effectively what a lot of countries have now, I suppose, that X amount of people can come in and do X amount of things, right? That'd be the flip side. Yeah, exactly, right? So the current set of immigration policies that we have involves strict caps on the number of migrants in various categories. So political decision makers decide how many people we want from each type of visa category, whether that's high-skilled work visas, low-skilled work visas, uh, family reunification type uh, visas or, or family related visas, right? And by contrast, if we had uh, relatively free migration, we could instead imagine people deciding these things on the basis of various forms of voluntary agreements, some of which would be mediated directly through markets. So labor is likely to be that way, some of which might be mediated more through non market type things. So, for instance, family migration is less of a market decision per se, but it's still a voluntary type decision, right? Asking, hey, uh, dad, you live in a country where I would like to move. Can I move in with you? That's not exactly a market decision, but it's a voluntary decision involving the dispersed knowledge of uh, people in the local context, specific knowledge of people who know each other, rather than somebody from the top who doesn't know either of these people saying, no, we're only going to allow this, member of, this number of family-related immigrants. And so we can see how this type of 
polycentric process works by looking at contexts where there is relatively free migration, right? Between, for instance, states in the United States, we have uh, free migration, right? So I didn't need to get any government's permission to move from Virginia to New York. I didn't need to get any government's permission to move from New York back to Virginia after my postdoc concluded. And so in that case, who was I negotiating with? It wasn't, you know, the government of New York said we will only allow this many economists to move to New York on this uh, visa that we're going to give to PhDs or whatever. Instead, it was, all right, I need to go on various Facebook groups and other housing listing sites and find somewhere where that I can rent an apartment in New York. And I need to talk to all these different people who are potentially putting out ads for roommates or who are putting out ads for apartments to rent. And similarly, I need to negotiate with uh, people who provide transportation in order to move my stuff up. And of course, the decision that ultimately led to me moving to New York was also a decision that involved me being on the academic job market and sending out job applications to a bunch of places, including New York University, right? Just like my decision to move back to Virginia involved me applying to a bunch of academic jobs and eventually receiving an offer from uh, the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, right? And so in those sorts of settings, it's a polycentric process. I'm applying to a bunch of jobs from a bunch of different employers. I'm asking a bunch of different people, both prospective roommates and prospective landlords, whether I can move into a particular place. I'm looking up different rates for either moving companies or for buses or these sorts of things as ways of moving there. And so that's a polycentric market process. It's a process where there's no one decision maker who gets to decide Nathan can move to New York or no, Nathan is prohibited to New York. Instead of that single veto point, that you know person who gets to decide, all right, I decide how many economists will be in New York. I decide how many economists will be in Virginia. Instead, it's a process of negotiation and discovery involving a bunch of prospective tenants interacting with a bunch of prospective landlords, a bunch of prospective employers interacting with a bunch of prospective employees, a bunch of prospective travelers interacting with a bunch of airlines, bus companies, train companies, and so on. And so that type of process allows people to discover deals that at least ex ante, they consider mutually beneficial. And people might worry that the result of that process is going to be chaotic. And certainly some people's plans get frustrated in those processes, right? Unemployment exists. People find it really stressful to find housing, but it still comes to a resolution, a coordination of plans that is likely better than any single organization that was trying to decide from the top down how many people will live in New York, how many people will live in Virginia would reach. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sort of glad you ended on that point, too, because I was going to mention that it's always worth reemphasizing that all this, you know, the, the market based approach to not almost everything, frankly, in my opinion, at least, but all, but also, of course, specifically on this topic, immigration, um, you know, it doesn't just benefit the two people interacting, you know, the, the dad and the son or, or the, the, the prospect of an employer employee. It also, as you were alluding to earlier, you know, uh, has positive effects mo mostly on the people around, you know, you mentioned that the point of agriculture too, right? I suppose the, the contrasting worlds that we're painting here is on the one hand, you have a world where, I don't know, I'm just, you know, a bunch of family farms need to hire a bunch of farmhands, let's say, and they have to go talk to the government on the one hand about letting a bunch of these folks in, or on the other hand, they can just maybe perhaps figure out a way to signal the farmhands to come over and they do. So it's an interesting two worlds that we paint, right? Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and the next market mechanism I'd like us to move, move on to, excuse me, not market mechanism, you, you claim these poly, the, the sort of polycentric mechanisms, I should say. We talked about markets. Uh, and then the next one was civil society. So on, on the same kind of note, if you could describe a bit of what, what you mean by that and then connect that to when we talk about polycentricity in general, why this is another mechanism worthy of attention in terms of positive effects of dealing with uh, climate change-induced migration. Yeah, so civil society is a broad umbrella term that refers to social cooperation that's not commercial. It's not occurring within the market. People aren't necessarily buying and selling, but it's also not the state. And so there are a lot of different types of examples of this. So some of it might be things like churches or other religious organizations. Some of it might be nonprofit organizations or non-government organizations or NGOs, right? And some of it might be a bit less formal than that. So say groups of friends or community groups or informally formed social movements, uh, networks of people who know each other through being, say, members of an ethnic minority. So we often see immigrants moving to certain uh, neighborhoods where that immigrant group is a majority ethnicity. And the types of cooperation among neighbors there would be an instance of social cooperation that we could perhaps consider an instance of civil society. But it's often used to describe these formal organizations that are not market, but also not state. And so these would be things like charitable groups. And so, for instance, um, if the process of market coordination fails to result in all the people who move to a wealthy country due to climate change finding housing, it might be that a nonprofit organization would pick up the slack and say, we're going to offer shelter to these immigrants. It might be a religious group that does it out of a uh, perceived religious duty. It might be a nonprofit organization that gathers donations and does it out of a humanitarian duty, right? But whatever the case may be, sometimes markets aren't going to perfectly coordinate and people can still through voluntary interaction pick up the slack through things like charitable giving, mutual aid, and so on. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I guess it sort of ties in nicely as well, but then the, the idea of community governance as a polycentric mechanism, and then if you can get into that and talk about uh, the immigration point as well as far as climate change. Yeah, so when we talk about community governance, this can include some things that aren't markets or governments, right? So it could be things like a uh, community of resource users, for instance, uh, setting up rules to govern a common pool resource like a fishery. So this is a lot of what Eleanor Ostrom talks about. But we're also including here local municipal governments. So for example, uh, suppose a bunch of immigrants move to a city, and that city then has to make decisions about government policy pertaining to how they're going to interact with those immigrants. So for instance, are they going to make certain services available in a language that the immigrant group speaks um, if they haven't yet learned the dominant language in the country that they're moving to? Um, are they going to, then uh, this becomes important in contexts where immigration is to a large extent prohibited by the central government, as uh, much of it is in the United States, is the local government going to cooperate with immigration enforcement authorities, such as Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE? Well, if they decide to do that, then that's going to impede processes of cooperation that might be relevant to the government producing uh, public goods. So, for example, um, if a local government decides we're going to, if a um, 
if a immigrant winds up in our custody, um, we're going to call immigration and customs enforcement and tell them that they're there. This is likely going to result in immigrants being afraid to report crimes to the police. Insofar as local crime control is an important local public good, the local police department's ability to produce that is in part determined by what policies the local government sets with respect to how welcoming they are to immigrants and how much they are cooperating with the central government's immigration enforcement authorities. And so many larger cities especially um, have set policies like trust policies or sanctuary city policies. And one benefit we argue of these types of policies set on the local level is that it allows immigrants to cooperate as relatively equal members of the community, and that cooperation can help with the production of the types of local public goods that are important to a community flourishing. And we argue that letting decisions like that be made to a greater extent by local governments is going to be better for fostering trust with migrant communities and developing policies that are suited to local conditions and will result in various types of uh, production of and provision of local public goods to a greater extent than would be expected if instead uh, the central government dictated every local government jurisdiction needs to help us with enforcement of federal immigration law. Right. And, and, you know, and you guys do note that, like, you know, especially in reference to everything you just said, I think you provided an excellent tour of those, those mechanisms, but that there's, you guys say that right at the beginning of the paper too, that, you know, um, the polycentric approaches to this issue can work if quote, legal institutions allow them substantial space to work freely end quote. So, so what, what does that part mean? Cause someone might be listening to you and saying, yeah, that's all good. Why aren't we doing that? So, so what do we mean about, you know, the legal institutions allowing them the substantial space to work freely? Yeah, so all of these polycentric mechanisms can be subject to top-down interference by relatively monocentric authorities. So this is especially clear in the case of the market mechanisms that we talked about, right? It is illegal to hire an immigrant unless they have permission from the government to be there, unless they have, say, a work visa or some other visa that grants them the ability to work. Mm -hmm. And so that means a bunch of mutually beneficial market exchanges that people would find it to be in their interest to pursue ordinarily, um, absent this coercive interference, are prohibited. And that prevents some number of those exchanges. And for those exchanges that does not prevent, it puts people in a very different position where the market they're facing is more monocentric, right? So suppose you're here in the United States without legal permission, you're an undocumented immigrant, and you're working a job where your employer could, if you ask for too much, report you to ICE and get you deported, right? That puts you in a very different type of power position than you would be in if you were in a situation where you were free to seek another job at any time. Mm -hmm. And like a resident would, in contrast, like if people put that exactly. hat on, right? Like, yeah, exactly, right? While I was a postdoc at NYU, I had the right to apply to jobs wherever, right? Whereas if I was Ill unlawfully employed somewhere, well, I'm not allowed to be employed anywhere in the country in that context. So if I'm, if I'm an undocumented immigrant, then I'm very vulnerable because my only employment option is this employer. And the employer, if they know I'm there illegally, 
has the ability to report me to authorities who can send me back to a much worse situation that I fled, right? So that's a especially bad situation. But even in a situation involving certain work visas, those work visas might be tied to a particular employer. So you might be put into a monopsony right. position, right? So you might have a visa that's exclusively a visa to work for this employer. And so you're not free to just apply to the other job. So one margin on which we could make immigrant labor markets more polycentric would be to make work visas transferable, make it easier for somebody who's here on a work visa to apply for a job at another firm and have their visa automatically count towards that job. That would allow for movement of laborers towards opportunities where their work is more valued. So it would presumably increase the amount of wealth created. It also would be better for those workers because they would be in a more competitive labor market rather than a monopsony labor market where they're more vulnerable to whoever their employer is at the time. Um, similarly, increasing the number of work visas or eliminating caps on the number of work visas or eliminating work visa requirements, right? It's not as though I had to get a visa to go work in <laughs> New York City after having worked and lived in Virginia or vice versa, right? right? Eliminating those requirements would allow for those polycentric market adjustments to occur to a greater extent than they do when you're required to go through a process of getting a visa. So all of these types of liberalization, which we can think of occurring on a continuum from sort of uh, full prohibition where you need to get permission for everything you do to a situation where you need to get permission, but there's more permissions that they're willing to give out to a situation where you don't need to get permission, right? Uh, we some some people in our circles talk about permissionless innovation. Similarly, we could talk about permissionless immigration, right? Um, that would be a move towards more polycentric use of local knowledge. So that's how this might work on the level of markets. When we think about the level of civil society, there's a few different types of examples we can think about. So some of this is a matter of, you know, allowing. Uh, civil society groups to interact to a greater extent, right? So if we consider families, for instance, to be part of civil society, if there are limits on the number of people who can migrate to be with their family, eliminating or lifting those limits would allow for more freedom of choice there. But the other thing, not just related to liberalizing immigration, would be also not cracking down on civil society groups that help migrants in contexts where uh, the government doesn't like it, right? So uh, one example of this is there's a nonprofit organization called No More Deaths. And so they offer humanitarian aid in desert regions on the US-Mexico border. So US border security policies have driven migrants away from more populated areas because in areas around cities, the US Border Patrol has a particularly heavy presence and so that pushes migrants towards more dangerous routes that are in more isolated and hot areas of the desert, areas that might become even more deadly due to climate change for that matter, but that are already substantially deadly, right? And to some extent, this is deliberate. It's called the prevention through deterrence doctrine. So the idea is, you know, well, migrants are rational agents. They respond to incentives. And if you raise the cost of doing something, you expect to get less of it. Demand curves slope downward. And so the idea was, all right, if we make the only way to illegally enter the country going through a very dangerous desert route, fewer people would do it. But of course, how much that that creates deterrence, 
uh, let's cut that since I kind of fumbled there. Yeah, but, you can restart um, where you'd like. Yeah. So the idea was to deter migration by making unlawful migration more dangerous. But how much that deters is going to depend on what economists would call the elasticity of demand for migration. And if demand to migrate is inelastic, then the total amount of migrants prevented from coming over is not going to necessarily be that big. Instead, you'll just have almost the same number of people, not quite the same number of people, but almost the same number of people perhaps crossing, just crossing in much more dangerous routes and therefore dying at much higher frequency. And that's what various social scientists who study these policies have observed. They find increases in corpses found, for example, along these dangerous desert routes after border wall construction, after put implementation of different surveillance equipment or other escalations of border security efforts along the border. And so what some of the activists with groups like No More Deaths decided to do is say, all right, we're going to go to these dangerous border areas and we're going to place bottles of water, like jugs of water along these desert routes. Right, So that's a civil society response to some very bad conditions that have been created by top-down government policy. Now, Border Patrol agents have done things like kick over those bottles of water, slash those bottles of water open, and even in some cases prosecuted members of No More Deaths um, for crimes, uh, saying that you're, say, engaged in trafficking or unlawful assistance of illicit migration or whatever else, right? I don't recall what the exact charges were, but basically saying it's illegal to offer this type of humanitarian aid. And so that's an example of top-down interference with civil society. Um, and what my co-author and I argue is that type of civil society effort is part of how people engage in social cooperation so as to promote a greater degree of adaptation to the conditions we're facing in the world. And top-down interference with that type of civil society activity therefore prevents various processes of adaptation and coordination. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, and so I guess like, like, cause we've discussed a lot there and that is really great. And our, our time started entering its final swing. So I'm going to try and tie a few bows as we go here towards the end of our, our time together. But when you zoom out, cause we, we dived into a lot of great examples there. We talked about mechanisms, markets, civil society, community governments, uh, governance, excuse me. You know, you were just on about what it really means for legal institutions to allow the space for these mechanisms to work freely and so on. But when you zoom out, how would you summarize like the picture you're painting? Is it really like the idea that when it comes to not only immigration in general, but some of the problems uh, that will be faced in the future with various folks moving around, you know, are you basically saying we can have a world where, you know, humans on the one hand can interact as they see fit to solve these problems. On the other hand, government can sort of, you know, handle it from that monocentric approach. Am, am I simplifying it too much? How would you sort of like, and and I hate to, you know, give ask you to create almost like a false dichotomy, but I think you see what I'm saying, right? Like, how would you sort of like, you know, g give door number one and door number two, if you were to summarize all this? Like, what are you really saying? Yeah, so I would definitely say to just as a qualification that it exists on a continuum. So there can be right. policies that are more and less polycentric. It's not as though there's sort of the polycentric ideal and the monocentric evil, right? Instead, what I'm presenting is there's a range of options, but options are, in my view, relatively better for people discovering ways of life that work well for them if they allow people to form various forms of voluntary association, to exit relationships that aren't working for them, to enter and form new relationships that work better for them, and to 
engage in various forms of bottom-up social cooperation and discovery that creates a complex tapestry of different organizational forms that are well-suited to the different circumstances and local knowledge that people have. And that type of polycentric tapestry can be formed through markets, it can be formed through civil society, but the crucial thing is that it requires the freedom, the space for people to explore and for people to discover what relationships work well for them. And so the monocentric alternative, the real danger to attempts to adapt to climate change, as well as attempts to adapt to any type of changing system, occurs when some set of rulers at the top of a hierarchy decide to impose upon people a specific plan and vision and say, if you deviate from this, you will face violent sanctions and coercion, right? So saying, we will only allow this number of immigrants that we've set politically, and if people beyond that number decide to seek employment or move to try to start a business or move to flee a war or move to flee a natural disaster, well, we've got a strong police force that we've called the U.S. Border Patrol or Frontex or Immigration and Customs Enforcement or whatever else, right? We've got a bureaucratic organization with the power to use violence that's going to coercively interfere with people seeking a better life, and they are going to enact a plan that's set from on high. So yeah, I would say that the type of continuum I'm looking at is between people having the space to form different types of voluntary associations and adapt and leave those different associations as circumstances change so that we can course correct and discover what works for us versus a situation where top-down techniques of social control are used to push people into conformity with a specific plan set at a specific time that is difficult to adapt in the face of changing knowledge and changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. Well, that was excellent. Thank you. And I should also say, you shouldn't go, you know, without reemphasizing too, like one thing you mentioned there is, you know, quote, without interfering with, you know, people trying to migrate or move to have a better life. I obviously totally agree with that. But on the other hand too, it's always interesting. People often, you know, tend to also sometimes miss the point or forget that it's also the, the people that are already a citizen or already a resident of a certain country that you're interfering with, you know, for example, you know, for every, uh, you know, employee, there's the employer for every, uh, you know, person that's going to be renting a, uh, a flat or, or like a little apartment or a basement room or whatever else, there's always someone renting to them. So it's interesting too, that, uh, sometimes people forget that they're interfering with their own lives if they want a bit more of that control, at least in my view, I'm not sure if you agree with that sentiment. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. Controlling immigration means controlling citizens. This is something that the philosopher Chandran Kukathas emphasizes in his book, Immigration and Freedom, which I would highly recommend to all your listeners. And and with that, our time is pretty much round down here. So Nathan, thank you so much for the chat so far. I'm going to move us to our sort of formal wrap up here. And in each episode, uh, I want to make sure ultimately the guest has the last word to you know bring us full circle and put a finer point on our explanation of the question. So let me toss over to you the official last question, which is, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what immigration has to do with climate change and more specifically the, the sort of mono, monocentric versus polycentric conversation we've been having. In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here to leave with just one, two, or a few takeaways, if anything, what would you want them to take away from our chat today? So I want them to learn that in a changing world, it's important for people to be able to use their local knowledge to discover 
ways of adapting and that whether they have the space to discover adaptations that work well for them and that work well for others they're interacting with depends on the rules, the institutional context that they're facing. And therefore, that a set of rules that allows for many centers of decision-making that can interact through processes of competition, contestation, exchange, voluntary association, and bottom-up discovery is likely to be better for promoting human welfare than any system that involves political decision makers deciding how many people are allowed to pursue particular types of plans and pushing around those who deviate from those top-down plans. I think that's an excellent place to leave it, so, so we will leave it there. Nathan Goodman, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.